Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Rat Salary View. Today we are here with uh, Howard Johnson. Uh, you're actually the editor of uh, Rock Candy Magazine and also the vocalist from uh, Dawn After Dark. Welcome to Rat Salary yeah. View. Nice, nice to be here. It's um, it's a strange combo, isn't it? Not many people uh, put their heads above the parapet and playing bands when they're writing about it and, and critiquing others. Right. Yeah. Actually. Uh, yeah. Cause I do the same thing. I play music. I don't know if you see the drums behind me, but uh, how, how do you deal with that? Like, uh, like say you're critiquing somebody's band and uh, you know, maybe you can't think of like good things to say about it or whatever. I mean, do you, how do you deal with that negative feedback sometimes? I think the, the, the trick for me, because I've been doing both for a long time and particularly the music writing mm. is just to try and be scrupulously honest. I think, I think it gets easier as you get older right. because um, you don't have that desire to want to please all the time. Um, when you're young and you're starting out, you kind of want to feel that you're friends with the people who you are working with. And that, you know, when you go on the road with bands that it's very important that you kind of strike up a, a personal relationship with them and actually over the years i've come to the conclusion that's probably the wrong thing because really you're doing a disservice to the people you're writing for your job isn't there to um become friendly with musicians though obviously it's very nice when that happens but your primary function is to be honest um and to try to be critical about music in a way that is um well i would say resolutely impersonal mm. um i don't think it's my place to make comments about people um their private lives their attitudes that aren't related to music i think at the end of the day um i'm there to make a a critique of whether i like a band's music and to be able to justify that and that's as far as it goes yeah yeah uh, i actually uh, do stuff on tiktok as well and uh, a couple of days ago, you know, I posted a video of something and somebody asked me if I liked uh, Dokken. So I, I, I'm i not a huge fan of Dokken, you know, I, so I made a, a joke. Either. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but I made a joke, funny video, you know, about, you know, this, are you talking about this band here, but this shitty song or whatever? And I had so much hate about that. It was, it was actually pretty funny, but the, the, the amount of people that got so bent about that, I'm like, oh my God, it's just Dokken. It's one band. <laughs> I, think, I think it's it's kind of a, a weird moment when you realize that what you have to say about a piece of music can have such a a profound effect on people i think it's funny that you pick out dockens to talk about because um a friend of mine from back in the day when i used to work on kerrang and he did too 
um, went and interviewed Don Dockin. And I think it must have been in the 80s when they were opening for, I think it was Motley Crue. And Don Dockin had the perspicacity and the humility to quote a review from the New York Times that said, <laughs> when Dockin came on stage, a record number of hot dogs were sold. <laughs> so much as, I'm, much as I'm not a fan of his music, I find that shows... Um, a certain amount of character that I like. Right, right, yeah, yeah. He's always seemed like a, a really good character, but he's an awesome guitar player too. Just, I'm just not a fan of his music. But um, uh, yeah, and as you just mentioned too, you worked with Kerrang. Um, how come? Why did you not continue to work with them? Well, funnily enough, I mean, it's 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 a weird situation talking about Kerrang because I was a never employed full time by them. I was always a okay. freelancer. Um, the time that I spent with them was around about 10 years from 81 when the magazine launched or very soon after until around about 1990. Um, and yet much of my working life as a music journalist has been defined by those nine years um, because Kerrang! was such an incredibly important journal at a time when that was the way that people got access to information about music that was kind of, you know, periphery, certainly periphery in the UK where I, where I was living. Um, So it's always very strange to think that really much of my, my working life as a music journalist, and I haven't only been a music journalist in my time, it's certainly my time as a music journalist has been predicated on having uh, worked at Kerrang at a really important time. Mm. Um, And I, I'm very grateful for that. It was a brilliant time. Uh, fantastic time to be a print journalist because you were treated in ways that now I think journalists can barely imagine you know the the idea that you could get to spend a week on the road with ACDC or Bon Jovi or Guns N' Roses or whoever it was um, is now just completely unthinkable so I'm, I'm very grateful for having been around at that time and I think that I'm also grateful for the fact that I didn't hang on there too long. There was, you know, it was a great period. um, And I got to the point around about 1990 where there were some practical issues to deal with. You know, you don't make a lot of money as a music journalist. And I was getting, you know, I was getting to be in my mid twenties and finding that I, you know, I had desires to build a life outside of, uh, you know, working for a, a music paper. So, that was all kind of boring and practical reasons why I decided to move on. But um, in many ways, I look back on it now and think I'm glad I did what I did because there's nothing worse than people overstaying their welcome. And and it also means that lots of other people who have the same passion that I did, younger people came in and took up the mantle on Kerrang and carried it on. And I think that that's kind of the order of things and how, how things should go. Yeah. And now how did you get involved with uh, Rock Candy? Well, Rock Candy was um, really just a brainchild of myself and two other guys who worked for Kerrang um, in that in that period through the 80s. Um, Derek Oliver, uh, who is the owner of the magazine, and a guy called Malcolm Darwin, who sadly passed um, within the last three months. Wow. Uh, and we were both, uh, all three of us were just, you know, rock fans at our core. Um we didn't really feel that there was a magazine out there that was talking about what we felt were our formative years as music writers. 
in a way that reflected how we felt about it because we were much older guys and and you know we felt that we wanted to retain that original enthusiasm that we all had for Karen when it started, but be able to talk about things in a, in a way that was kind of, you know, a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more reflective and less gushing in praise of absolutely everything that was long haired and loud guitars. So I think kind of that was really where, where the motivation came from to do it. And, um, and I think that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a bit of an anomaly as a magazine because it, it exists in a time where most people don't read long articles. They certainly yeah. don't buy printed magazines and we've kind of gone against the grain by going, we want to go deep on stuff. We want to get really to the, to the core of, you know, how bands operated in that, that period, um, what they think about it now, which is a real blessing in doing the magazine now because you're dealing with people who's kind of you know to a large degree their races are run so mm. they don't have to do the bullshit you know hey everything's great and isn't our next album so wonderful and life's great great on the road they can actually you know look back and give you some perspective on it and and a lot of the time talk in a way that you that is just much more honest than it was back in the day yeah did you ever think about getting into like the podcasting stuff that's been blowing up lately kind of thought about it um but the reality of the situation is is um running a a magazine that's like a cottage industry so you've got you know small small team um producing you know content that takes quite a lot of work quite a lot of knowledge and quite a bit of time plus then doing a band really doesn't leave a whole lot of time for it so i guess the answer to that is um probably when retirement beckons then the podcast will arrive <laughs> yeah that's it's how like because i used to have a band too uh well i still do I, I do a couple of different bands now but um when i first originally left my my first band i'm like i'm kind of done with music and then but i still wanted to talk about music that's why i wanted to start the podcast so this kind of helped me still stay in with that music thing you know it's uh, i couldn't imagine myself not doing something involving music so you know i had to do this you know, i love the pod- i love the podcast format and i think that you know it's got real poten- uh, potential i think as a as a user of podcasts my one of my criticisms i guess would be that it seems like everybody and his dog wants to put out a podcast right. and a lot of people don't really think very carefully about what it is they're trying to do and why it would be different and what it's going to bring to our understanding of music mm. um there are people who do great things um but there's a lot of stuff that I listen to and kind of go, mm, you know, is the world of the world of music a richer place for that? I'm not so right, sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's, that's one thing I was always afraid of doing a podcast, but you know what? I, I'll try for a while. Yeah. I've been doing it since 2018. So, so far, so good. Yeah, so, so something's working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're still growing. The, the channel actually just got 800 subscribers on YouTube. So thank you everybody who is subscribed. And yeah, I, we got lots of files, like I said, on TikTok and everything. So things are going up and up and up every few weeks. So, that's good. Um, so getting into uh, uh, the band, um, were you singing? Actually, the, your band, this band started like 30-something years ago, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny story. Is that um, how, it, how it happened was that I was working on Kerrang! Um, as a freelancer all through the 80s. Um, and I had a kind of what you might call a eureka moment because my mm. background was very traditional rock art. You know, I was... I was 15 years old in England when the new wave of British heavy metal started. So that was obviously quite a, an important and formative period in my musical life. 
Um, but I found very quickly by the mid 80s that I was getting bored of a lot of the um, the kind of American rock that was being really touted on Kerrang a lot of the time. I found that um, it had become very formulaic, very repetitive, um, driven by a desire to be on uh, heavy rotation on MTV from you know, when I was in the States doing reports on bands. I saw how influential that was becoming. Mm. Just felt to me that it had become um, a little formulaic and a little dull, you know, repeating formulas because there was so much money being made, so many records yeah. being bought. It hasn't um, changed. I, <laughs> and I was looking for something different. And, um, and the thing that really... Um, sparked me was i was i was taken by a pr to see uh, a band in oxford which is probably i don't know an hour and a half outside of london and i didn't really know the band i'd heard a couple of songs um and that band was the cult oh. and and i saw the cult play in oxford to probably maybe a thousand people 1200 people something like that and it was trans it was transformative for me because mm. it it felt like there was a band out there that had the same roots that I did, your classic 70s rock roots from, you know, Led Zeppelin uh, through uh, Deep Purple uh, onto the more American bands uh, that had come out, you know, so uh, Hendrix, obviously, just what you would call classic rock, but they'd taken it and done something different with it. Um, so it, it, you could hear those roots, but it didn't sound like any of those groups. It certainly didn't sound like any of the kind of the hair metal things that were becoming popular in America. And I found that very inspiring. And that really made me feel like I wanted to play music myself, which is kind of a big leap to go. You know, I was always really excited by music, but to suddenly go, actually, I feel like this has inspired me to want to make music was a, was a big thing. Um, and so I, I started a band in uh in birmingham where i'd been at college and where i was still living despite working for kerrang as a freelancer at the time and that happened in 86 and there was a quite an interesting scene that was going on in the uk at that time which i don't know if it ever really translated to america it was a thing called grebo and it was kind of like um bands that wanted to play heavy music but didn't really want to be associated with i say you know the kind of the the overly theatrical makeup and teased hair type thing so there were bands that maybe in america nobody ever heard of zodiac mindwarp and the love reaction uh there was a band called crazy head um gay bikers on acid uh all kinds of weird and wonderful bands some of them great some of them not so great but yeah. what they were trying to do at least was kind of you know to capture the the visceral excitement of playing loud guitar oriented music with something that felt like it was trying to go somewhere new and i guess that kind of inspired me to want to make that kind of music and um and we ended up uh doing a lot playing a lot of shows in the uk through 86 to 89 we had a a deal with a a well-respected indie label called chapter 22 which had uh, bands like The Mission, Balaam and the Angel, who, again, are perhaps groups that aren't particularly well-known in the States. Um, and we put out three 12 inches on that uh, label and played with an awful lot of bands, probably did a 
maybe 200 shows um before at the end of the 80s the whole thing disintegrated and splintered for the usual nonsensical reasons of people falling out and um and not being able to see the wood for the trees ours was that there was a a potential publishing deal on the table that never really materialized and people fell out about who should get what all the usual stories um and then um i put that to bed and went and did all kinds of other things in the music industry and in the sporting industry for a very very long time for kind of well 20 years really without having um any urge to um scratch the performing itch until in 2019 a promoter completely out of the blue phoned us and asked if we would be interested in putting the band back together for a show in Birmingham where we were from with some of those bands that have been around in that era and um and really I hadn't had any intentions of doing anything musical at all but Mm. um it just felt like a good idea so we decided to do it again and then it was a, a very strange night because we ended up playing in the place where we'd spent so many years as a band and uh when we went on stage there were kind of like you know a couple of hundred people in there who I hadn't you know imagined would ever have remembered the band right. and they went crazy and it was a it was a brilliant night and we had a lot of fun and then it was kind of felt like well you know are we going to leave it here and then the um the promoter who had actually decided that he was going to resurrect the chapter 22 label um asked if we would be interested in recording an album and it just kind of snowballed from there oh wow that's funny you mentioned the cult and the mission i'm a huge fan of the mission and the cult i'm kind of just getting into uh but when i listen to the album uh, i definitely hear a little bit of a mix of both of those bands actually yeah i mean i I think that's that's fair comment everyone who's ever made music would like everyone to say it's original everything that you hear is completely new i've never heard it before (laughs) clearly clearly um all bands come from somewhere um that's very much our background um i think that we always talk about wanting to be a band that plays like a heavy rock band and listens to all kinds of different music. You know, the energy that we bring to the record, I think, to New Dawn Rising is palpable. Um, I'm very proud of it. I think it stands up against anything that could be described as a classic rock sound. Um, but you're absolutely right. Those influences are there. Um, nothing that I'm ashamed of. I think it gives us um, something that stands outside what you might call the traditional classic rock vibe while still being clearly recognisable as such. I mean, we're actually playing shows in the UK at the moment with another band that I don't know if you're aware of called Wolf Spain, who were on yeah. Death American. It was um, 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 Blaze Bailey's uh, band, right? Bla- yeah, it was yeah. Blaze Band, and we're actually doing shows with them um, right now in the UK. And they are a very much a classic heavy metal band right right, very different sounding to what i think we sound like but it fits perfectly well we go down well with their audience we get on well with those guys as bands you know my my attitude has always been um we're a rock band pure and simple and i hope that that's what comes across when people listen to the music yeah i I definitely think so and I, i love the album i think it's really awesome and um I, I there's not, not even one song i can maybe uh maximum overdrive I, I really love that song it's got kind of like an acdc type feel to it um, that's right i mean you know you, you you're absolutely right acdc kind of up to back in black was yeah, massive definitely. influence on me massive influence on on a lot of the guys in the band um 
and I think that yes, you know, you, you do hear some of those influences in there again, and I, and and again, that's something to me as a as a rock fan. Um, if people compare what we do to you know what I call classic era ACDC, well, I'll bite your hand off. Right. <laughs> um, now, I, some of these songs are from those original um, uh, singles that you released back in the eighties, uh, and it was that that song was one of them how much do they differ from the original versions are they pretty much the same or uh no they're not really the same i mean you, you could certainly look at there are three, there are effectively three songs that were released as as a sides of 12 inch singles in the uk in the 80s and all three of those songs appear on the album there's one maximum overdrive that you mentioned there's another song called the groove and a third song called crystal high um now all of those songs uh were recorded by a band on limited budgets as it was back in the day right. and get you know as you know if you listen back to records that were made at that time even bands that had enormous recording budgets were still producing stuff that you might listen to today and go do you know what you know with a with a, a, a laptop at home a couple of decent mics you can record something that sounds better right. um, so you know there was always in my mind what felt like a little bit of unfinished business because i don't think those records ever really captured what the band sounded like in the live environment and so that was a motivating factor not only to want to make a record see i still use the word record because i'm old school um <laughs> it's all right i still I have records <laughs> still still to want to make an album because i felt that there was an opportunity to produce something that would capture the sound that i heard back in the 80s in my head and i think that that you know that was a big motivating factor as i say and and being able to make a an album that really did sound the way i wanted the band to sound um was was a fantastic experience and i think that what happens with those old songs is that they sound entirely different and there are certain differences in the arrangement but not wildly so they mm. you know that they're, they're more punchy they they're played better because we're much more experienced musicians now yeah. um but really, the you know the 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 key factor is the fact that you can make a record that sounds like a big chunky rock record, which you know, which is what we did, yeah, and, and did it in five days, which you know, back in the eighties, oh, really? you know, a completely impossible task. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, uh, the other songs that you have on the album uh, were they songs that you just came up like on the spot, or did you have them over time, or had those come no, out? No, what. what what we had was kind of like a grab bag of material that had been worked on in the original incarnation of the band in the eighties, but a lot of it had either been um, demoed, but very quickly never released, mm. or there'd be a poor quality uh, rehearsal room tape of something. Um, so everything that's on the album has its roots in something that we did in the eighties, but there, there are along the scale, really huge differences in terms of, what those songs originally sounded like and what they sound like on the album. Some mm. of them sound pretty similar to how they did in the 80s. Some of them sound entirely different. You probably wouldn't even recognise them if you didn't know what the roots of those tunes were. So it's mm. kind of like, you know, a really a really big um, difference in, in the how each song has come to be made. Um, and, you know, again, the, 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 the exciting part for me about making the album was the fact that, all of this stuff that was kind of, you know, on little weird cassettes here and there um, could be reworked, you know, over the course, we probably did two weeks of rehearsal, um, knocked all the songs into shape, 
and then straight into do the album. So, oh. you know, it was kind of a pretty exciting way of doing it, flying by the seat of your pants. But um, <laughs> I think the results turned out well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, also, when you guys got back together, uh, you did not reunite with some of the original members because I believe one one passed away, right? Not too long ago. Yeah, sadly, the bass player, Dave, um, from the original band, he passed away. I mean, I hadn't spoken to him in many, many years. Um, but I I heard through through an, an interesting source, actually, because one of the roadies for Dawn After Dark in the very early days has now gone on to become Adrian Smith's guitar tech in Iron Maiden. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So, um, so he was the one who told me that David passed, unfortunately. The, uh, the two guitarists, one was a guy called Rich. Um, we managed to track him down. He didn't have the same enthusiasm for the project that myself and Tony, the drummer, did. Mm. And George, who was the other guitar player, just couldn't find anywhere, which in, in this day and age of everyone leaving a trace, you know, in social media here, there and everywhere is frankly phenomenal. And believe mm. me, we tried and couldn't find him. So, um, so no, it's not the original lineup. The original members are myself and Tony Henderson, who's a drummer. Um, and then uh, two new guitar players, uh, one of whom Tony has played with for 20 years in other projects because Tony never stopped playing music. Mm. Um and a new bass player who was in a band in the 80s that, again, probably wouldn't be known in America, but had a little bit of success in the UK called For God's Sake. Um, his name is Drew. So um, the band is guys who are all kind of 40 to mid 50s. Um, and the great joy of doing it is that we do it for no other reason than pleasure. Um, and feeling that our music is good enough to be heard and um we go out and we play shows with no other intention than to just do the best performance we possibly can uh, there's nothing riding on it for me personally nor the other guys so in many ways i think that that's in 2022 probably the purest way that people of my age group can make music is to go I'm not here for any other reason than right. the love of the music that, yeah. you know, the, the time that's invested in it, the time that's invested in going out on the road and playing is not because we have uh, any kind of belief that somehow some major label is going to pluck us out of obscurity and turn us into, you know, a regular touring band. We do it because we love the music that we make and we're allowed to make it uninhibited from any commercial constraints whatsoever we have a really uh, really supportive record label in chapter 22 a guy called dean brown runs that label and he's in it for the same reasons as we are uh, because he loves the music and and that gives you a tremendous freedom to be able to just really do exactly what you want write the music that you want squeeze every inch of enjoyment out of doing it um without having to worry about whether there'll be enough people through the door at a gig to pay the bills, whether you're going to get, you know, um, an option for an album is going to get picked up and you're going to be able to make another one. Those are issues that don't concern us. And in many ways, that's hugely liberating. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I feel the same exact way because, you know, I'm at that age now where, you know, I have a job. I I don't need music to support myself. So I'm just doing it to have fun, you know, and and I I like creating things. There, there are um, 
obviously people at the top of the tree uh, who earn, you know, a great living out of it, and that's fine, and they are what you would call your traditional rock stars. And then yeah. there are an awful lot of people who are, you know, still professional musicians who are having to really work incredibly hard to keep their head above water. And, um, you know, I take my hat off to them. It's a, it's a, it's a brave move to, to live your life like that. Um, but I think that the way that Dawn After Dark is set up is perfect for the integrity of the music. Yeah, definitely. Now, how did you become a singer? I mean, were you always like a singer? Did you want to be a singer when you were younger or how'd that become? <laughs> uh, a, a fierce lack of talent at playing an instrument. <laughs> I think that's probably what it was. Um, like most like most people who think they can sing, I, I kind of felt that I had some attitude that I could bring to a band. I think I had... I felt I had some things to say, not that it's, you know, remotely kind of political or deep. And, uh, uh, but I felt that I had a way of expressing words that were perhaps different to what your classic traditional rock bands were. And, um, I felt that, uh, my voice was good enough. Um, and I think over the years I've probably surprised myself by, the quality of what I've been able to produce. Um, um, I actually listen back to, um, you know, the new Dawn Rising album and feel very satisfied and happy with, with my vocal performance on it. Um, and I think that's perhaps um, testament to caring about the art of it and, and really wanting to improve and be as good as you possibly can be. Yeah. Now, do you sing fairly much similar to what you did back in the 80s or you had to change it up uh, well, a little bit? I, I kind of, you know, I feel that there's a little bit more, um, a little bit more life experience, I suppose, in the way that I sing. It's not that something that I've ever really, I didn't consider when I went in to record the album. I wasn't going, how am I going to sing that's different to how I sang in the 80s? But I think mm. it's just natural, you know, the tones of your voice change as well. Yeah. Um, and luckily i've kept all the power that i had um and i think there's a kind of there's a, a rounder tone to my voice that i i prefer mm -hmm. so you know it's obviously people who know the band from the 80s um will be able to make their own judgment uh, judgment on that but um touch wood so far people seem to be uh, very complimentary about you know, not only my performance, but the whole the whole performance of the band. It doesn't feel like the reviews that we've received suggest that you know this is a bunch of old guys playing at it. Most the reviews have been very positive and said this feels like a a genuine rock band playing genuine rock music right. and coming from a genuine place. And I think that's um, that's the most you can hope for. Yeah, I, I'm actually going to mention that same exact thing because sometimes, like like Blue Oyster Cult, I mean, they're an older band. And you can yeah. tell now with the, the newest album, actually, you can tell there's some uh, younger people working with them. But as there are some of the older albums, you can tell that they're getting kind of old. And even some of the solo projects that they've done over the years, you can tell yeah. that they're a lot older. But you guys, it, if I didn't see a picture of the band or anything, I would not know, you know, you guys were older. You know, I would have no idea because you do sound more like a younger group of guys, especially with the music. You know, it's very upbeat and everything. Yeah, well, so. you know, I mean, that's that's really nice to hear. And um, and thank you for the comment. It's um it's really and, it, and even the production too. The production is 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 very crisp and very clear, and it, it's it's a very very clear production. It's it's a top notch. 
done really yeah, well. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that, that you think that. And, and you know, I, with, I, I guess what I would say is that because of my background as a music journalist, I'm probably acutely aware of whether what Dawn After Dark does passes muster and is right, actually, right, right. you know, good enough to be out there. Because clearly, and quite rightly, I'm there to be shot at. You know, I'm up there giving my opinions about other people's music, so it's right. entirely fair and appropriate that people should be allowed <laughs> to give their opinions unvarnished about mine. So I, you know, I was very aware of that myself, that I wanted to make sure that I was going to put that album out and go, I'll stand by that no matter what anybody says. Um, and I think that, you know, we achieved it. I've lived... I've lived with the record for a good few months now and, and still feel very happy with what we did and, and the way it sounds and, and the um, the performances and the, you know, the energy that we brought to it. Yeah. Do you ever think of adding some of those uh, older singles like as bonus tracks that, on the album or you just didn't want people to even hear those anymore? Um, it's not that I don't want people to hear them. I kind of think that, you know, music like that's a time capsule it it means different things to different people and and i've realized this when having reactivated the band is that things that i listened to that we recorded then i go well you know the sonically it's just not up to scratch other people come up to me at gigs and say i just absolutely love that song i love that recording um because i think a lot of the time you know these these things are tied up with people's emotional responses. It, it reminds them of a certain time in their life and what they yeah. were doing and where they were carefree and that they were, you know, good relationship, getting girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever. Um, and I think what I've learned is that I, I shouldn't be the one to trash their view of something that I might decide isn't good enough for my standards. Right. But I, I think it's much better for me to just, not comment on those records and let people enjoy them for whatever reasons they have Mm. um, and kind of, you know, leave them where they were. Would I put them as a kind of a bonus track? Probably not. Um, I think there are other things that I would like to do with those uh, songs, you know, maybe do acoustic versions of them again, you know, take ideas that we've still got kind of in the grab bag that didn't get used for this first album and see if you could work things up so there are probably ways that i would like to use that old music but just in terms of giving people that song again attached to new material probably not for me we did do one thing which was on the pre-order of the album we put a song called what we are onto it as a bonus track for people who basically paid for the album up front Mm. and that was done as a tribute to Dave Askey, who is the bass player who passed, uh, because it was a song that really highlighted his bass playing. Um, and it was literally a one take um, in a in a recording studio song. We had like it was a it was a song that hadn't been completely finished. We had five minutes at the end of the session. We recorded it live. But it, it captured a certain something. And obviously with the fact that Dave's no longer with us, it felt appropriate to let people see that and hear that. Uh, and I'm actually very glad that we did it because um, it really has, a, to my mind, a lot of charm because it's so just 
five guys playing in a room and trying to develop an idea. Yeah, um, but that's yeah, very raw. Yeah, and that's a different way of letting people hear because that 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 track was never released to anyone. It was you know like I say that it wasn't really completely finished. Hmm. It was a, a rough pass at something, but I think that has some kind of emotional depth that um, that means it, it it sits well on a version of the album that people who've already kind of committed to the notion of Dawn After Dark or already like the notion of what the band is get to hear. Right. Now, are you working on new music for another album? I think the, the, the answer to that is probably, mm. but as you all know, just as well as I do, um, there's no, there's no money in creating new music now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, the commitment that's required to build an album of material from scratch is quite considerable. Mm. And that's not, that's not a financial, that's about committing time where people are all flung to different corners of the country. I mean, I live in France. I don't even live in the same country as the, right. as the rest of the band. Right, yeah. So um, there are some logistical issues with that. Um, and just the amount of time that's invested to work up a whole new set of material based on, you know, ideas that need to be fully explored. Mm. Um, I think there is a lot of will in the band to want to do it. Um, but when that would be is a little bit up in the air. Um, mm. I'd like to think there will be more music, but um, I don't think you can say with absolute certainty that that's going to be the case. Mm. Well, that'd be a shame because this, this album, I, it, I would love to hear, a, you know, a next one because this one is actually really good. And, and I will buy this album because, you know, sometimes I'm not sure what a band's going to sound like if I've never heard of it before. But uh, yeah, I was really, um, really, you know, surprised to hear how good the album actually is. So uh, that's why I was hoping maybe hopefully there's another one. So, well, as I say, you know, it's 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 very much something we would like to do. And if the stars align, um, we'd like to think it would happen. But, you know, it's yeah. it's. It's it's very nice to hear such positive words, and obviously, if your listeners want to go and check out uh, a couple of tracks from the album, they're um, they're available on streaming platforms and on YouTube. There are a couple of videos for Maximum Overdrive, and nothing can fulfil me. Mm. So people can kind of dip their toes in the water. Um, we took because, uh, like you said, some of the songs are available on on streaming. How come the whole album is not on streaming? As, least, as far as Amazon does not have it on streaming at all. No, we we deliberately only put two songs up on streaming platforms to start with because um, the record label that uh, financed the album, obviously a small record label, they need to recoup their money. That comes from not from streaming, as I'm sure you can well imagine, but from selling right. physical product, and so we took that decision that it was the right thing to do to um, make sure that we offered a pre-sale uh, album plus the album still available from the chapter 22's website now. Mm. And we hope that people understand that that's a decision that is based around recouping the money that's invested by a small record label. And I think that's the right thing to do. And the plan is now that the album has already recouped, which is uh, good news for us and good news for the record uh, label, we are going to put the full album up onto streaming platforms, I would imagine, certainly by the end of the summer. Oh, good. Great. 
Yeah, because I when um, when uh, Ben told me about you know you co- coming on the show, I'm like, all right, let me just because I was at work and I'm like, let me look it up on streaming real quick. Real quick and there's only two songs. I'm like, oh man, where's the rest of it? But those, those two <laughs> yeah. songs were good. But so then when he gave me the full album, I was I was happy to see there's more songs. But uh, yeah, I can't wait yeah, to hear. I mean, the whole you know, it's, it's just it's just the nature of the business for bands of our stature, and you know, yeah. it, you need to make sure that you can recoup your costs before you can move forward. But you know, we obviously are very aware that having the full album on streaming platforms will give us access to a much wider public and that'll help us if, you know, when we come to doing more material as and when that happens. Yeah. How do you feel about the whole streaming thing? I mean, do you miss like the physical media or do you like, are you used to um, the streaming now? Well, the reality is that I, you know, I, I barely put on a, a CD anymore because it's just so practical, isn't it? So mm. to, to stream something on your phone or on your computer um, is so easy. And so, um, you know, I, I'm a part of that world now that wants to have instant access to music wherever, whenever. Um, the notion that you would pay for music seems for better or for worse very antiquated now. Um, it's hard to get people to put their hand in their pocket, which, you know, which is why I'm very grateful for the old Dawn After Dark fans who understood why we were asking them to buy physical products. I think that um, it's it's very difficult now as a band to to imagine um, making money out, out of people listening yeah. to your music. Obviously, you know, rock bands in particular have to go out and make money from playing live. Um, and if they're lucky enough to be able to get themselves a publishing deal, there are sync opportunities where people want to sell your music to, you know, advertisers or um to film soundtracks or whatever you know i think right. that, that most bands who are now you know professionally active are looking at those methodologies to make money and mm. that's hard because clearly the business has been turned on its head it was at one time everything was a loss leader to make people buy a piece of product Right now, a piece of product is a loss leader to make people go and see bands live and buy a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somewhere I, I was talking to a promoter today, and he was telling me, like, you know, bands that are you would consider professional bands that have been around for a long time and earn their living making music. Even now, their touring doesn't break even, mm-hmm. and the only way they make money is by the merchandise that they sell. Right. So that's that's a tough place to be, isn't it? You know, if you're a band that's that's you know trying to feed five mouths, right? Yeah, uh, and you're going, you know, my biggest revenue stream had I been around in the eighties, which was selling music, gone. Touring is still expensive. You know, the the price of a ticket it doesn't compensate for the loss of that revenue that 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 bands have had, and so you're only you're only methodology is to like i say if you're lucky enough to sell some music for an advert or for a a tv series those are few and far between those opportunities so really you're looking to sell you know sell merchandise to keep a band afloat and that's a that's a tough ask yeah yeah unless you kiss or or even ghost i mean ghost has uh, so much you know there are there are bands who are absolutely smashing it and you know they are clearly um making very good money and they have a 50 year history behind them and they have back catalog and all that stuff that's that you know there's clearly a very lucrative career in music to be had for those people but you know 
Kiss and Iron Maiden are headlining at Donington at um, the Download Festival in, in England this weekend, which is the big rock festival of the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can guarantee you that those those bands are being paid phenomenal amounts of money. Mm-hmm. But I imagine down at the bottom of those bills, because it's a you know it's a three day festival with numerous stages, there will be bands playing on that same show who will be really struggling. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the, 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 the equality of distribution isn't there anymore. And, you know, Paul Stanley isn't going to turn around and go, I'll tell you what, I'll waive my fee for playing the download festival and give it to all the bands on the bottom of the bill, even though he could probably afford it. That's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. He could do it for free. <laughs> definitely not going to well, happen. Well, you know, there's, there's an argument to say they could, but of course that's just not going to happen because yeah. <laughs> that's not how people think yeah no not at all but uh yeah that's crazy but uh yeah like i said this this album is really great uh new dawn rising uh the band don't after dark i uh, just i i wish the, the best of luck to every for you and the band and, and the album and everything um where can people you said catch 22 website but where can they go to buy it what's the website yeah, if they want to buy, if they want to buy the album they can go to our website which is www.thedawners.com okay com, or if they want to look up chapter 22 records chapter and 22 the number then they'll be able to find ways to access the album and as i say um you know people who buy product from bands these days um are really supporting yeah. music in uh in a very tangible way um and if people can't afford to buy it go and listen to the two tracks we hope you love them and the full album will be on streaming platforms um, by the, we, I imagine, the end of the summer. Very right, cool. Are you guys on Facebook and Twitter too? or? Yeah, we do Facebook. We don't do Twitter because we're strictly old school, but we are on Facebook. I don't blame you. What are, what are you guys on Facebook? Ooh, I think it's Dawn After Dark Official, I think it's called. Okay. Well, everybody just look up Dawn After Dark. And that's really, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that gets posted there from fans of the band and people who go and see the band live. Like I say, we're on tour with Wolfsbane at the moment, so there's a lot of chatter about what's going on and those things and probably various people holding up cameras and filming the band and what have you so you know people get an idea of what's going on with the group right now yeah um, how has how it so, been yeah. touring with uh with blaze i blaze gets so much crap for being the iron maiden singer for his time period but i i actually love that time period when he was in it but uh how is well, it getting the, along the, with him? The, weird, the weird thing about touring with wolfsbane is that actually we we toured with them in 1989 so 33 oh, wow. years ago we were touring with them um and it's just been a joy to be able to see those guys again. I was in touch with Steve Danger, who's the drummer, um, but the other guys I'd, I'd lost touch with, and then to be able to tour with them and sit down and reminisce about the good old days and still watch them do their high-energy show to you know a, a crowd of people who just absolutely love that band um, mm. has, been, has been a joy. So um, my thing has always been I will put Dawn After Dark up against anyone, any time, any stage, any style of music. Um, so um, playing with Wolfsbane or playing with an acoustic folk trio holds no fears for me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just like being out there playing, playing the kind of rock music we play. Yeah, very good. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Howard Johnson. I really appreciate it. Had a lot of fun. It's been a it's been a great pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation and thank you for your interest.
All right, yeah, no problem. And I will be buying that album, I promise, because I really, really <laughs> What a good it. man. <laughs> All right. And thank you guys for watching. Uh, com. Hit subscribe on YouTube and uh, all the podcast channels that we're on, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Looking for some new podcasts to listen to? Well, look no further than the Ratsaw Review Network. Ratsaw Review is taking over the podcast world with plenty of shows to choose from within their network of entertaining programming, including... The flagship show, Ratsaw Review, with Wayne Noon, Greg Noggle, and Lou Mavs, as well as occasional co-hosts Manny Mejias and James Lilquist. We also have the official Ratsaw Review spin-offs, such as Album vs. Album, Screams from the Grave, where we discuss beloved yet forgotten hard rock and metal albums of the past, and a King Diamond podcast called This Broadcast Belongs to Them. We've also got Old Man Metal's Musings, the Metal Thrashing Nerd podcast with Metal Thrashing Mike, the Team Otoki podcast featuring Stradivarius and Avalon founding member Timo Toki, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, a podcast dedicated to cheesy films of the 1980s with Tara J and Adam, and the Music is Live podcast with Lou Mavs. The Ratsaw Review Network is your go-to one-stop shop for the best podcasts out there today. Go to RatsawReview.com for more info. And to find out where you can find, follow, subscribe, and comment on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and all streaming platforms. The Ratsaw Review Network. We're taking over.